Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on the Next Level Brands podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you're selling on a regional basis or at farmer's markets or maybe even just online and you want to expand your distribution to retail, then you should look into the courses and webinars from kitchentoshelf.com. Want to learn more about distributors, co-packers, trade funding? Kitchen to Shelf can help you learn what you need to know to grow. More details available at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. And I'm Steve Clare, and I'm really excited to have with me today as my guest, Hugh Thomas, who is the CEO and co-founder of Ugly Drinks, both uh, centered around New York, New York, and London in the UK, and we're going to get to that. Hugh started out his career attending University of Warwick. He was a student brand manager for the Unilever Company and then moved over to H.J. Hines where he was marketing ketchup, of course, and I'm sure he'll talk more about that. And then he went on to Vita Coco in the UK and then formed Ugly Drinks. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Thank you for having me here. That's great. Have you had many Brits on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you, you're, you're actually the first Brit. We, we've had an Aussie. I'll take that. I'll be proud of that. Yeah, we, okay. yeah, we had an Aussie, and you know, and um, and then yeah, but every this is the first, the first Brit. So I'll, I'll try to be careful awesome. to make sure I speak the Queen's English um, going forward. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I have to ask. I know it, but I have to ask a question because it's the first question everybody has. Is you, you're going to start a brand? You've got some CPG background. And you call it ugly. Yes. How did that go? So, um, well, you have to stand out, right? I think, uh, and we certainly do that, and it's memorable. No, um, <laughs> in all seriousness, I think um, Joe, my co-founder, and I, we were, we, 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 were, we were young when we started the business in our early 20s, and we were rebellious. We were frustrated with the problem in the market that we saw. Um, and we felt that other consumers our age certainly younger, certainly around our age at the time, were also becoming increasingly frustrated with what was what was available in terms of soft drinks uh, without sugar or sweetener. Um, and we saw there was, a, there was a world of kind of carbonated soft drinks or flavored, flavored sparkling waters that had sugar, had sweetener, had other ingredients you didn't want in them. But when you saw the marketing, it was smiley, happy people and promises of happiness and health and, and wellness and we just thought there was something ugly about that, and uh, <laughs> we wanted to tell the ugly truth about it. So we set out creating this kind of rebellious, authentic brand that told the ugly truth. Um, and I think at the same time, the other thing we noticed was the same thing happening in politics and, and culture. Um, the whole idea of fake news and alternative facts, we felt, was uh, very aligned with what was happening on the back, back of food and drink packages. Um, look at the front of a of a product with a healthy name and then you turn the packaging around and it's loaded with sugar, sweeteners, artificial ingredients. And yeah, so we, we set out to tell the ugly truth and do things in a slightly different way. Now, now you had, a you know, obviously some, some background in CPG and um, a, a ketchup. I, I remember in ketchup when they would do taste tests that, that Heinz would always finish a little bit down the list because Hunt's would usually win. It was because they had just tons of sugar in <laughs> in the ketchup <laughs> and it was guaranteed to win you a taste test. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I learned a lot working at the company. Um, and in many ways, Heinz was a disruptive brand in itself. I mean, Henry Heinz, I can't remember when, 1870-something? Maybe I, I should remember that. Um, when he started the business, was one of the first entrepreneurs to package his goods in transparent packages. So uh-huh. he... I think was maybe the first person to put a CPG product in a transparent package. And Could so, be. yes, disrupted yep. with, with those products and the 57 varieties in the inverted commas that they, that they launched. But yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to create work on products and brands that were uh, healthier, certainly better for people. Uh, I still love my experience at Heinz, but yeah, I'd always wanted to do something that was uh, a little less high in sugar. So did you, did you and your uh, co-founder start, in the UK or in the US? Yeah, so Joe and I met working at Vitacoco, the coconut water business, which is obviously an American brand, but we, we were working in the European business, which is headquartered in London. Um, we were two of the first employees of the, that branch of the business, which was run very much like a startup. It wasn't a corporate corporate office, as you'd imagine, from Vitacoco. Sure. Um, and yeah, we started, we started ugly alongside our day jobs, so in the mornings and evenings. Um, <laughs> And then eventually full-time, and we left to go full-time in kind of early 2016, which is when we launched the product in London. Okay. And then, um, and then coming over to the U.S., was that, that was obviously in the plans from the beginning? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously I've worked for two great American brands in Heinz and Vitacoco, um, and we always had that dream of doing it. I think it came slightly earlier in the, in the life, lifetime of the business than I'd ever imagined, but... We were just seeing great traction in the UK for the proposition we had and lots of interest in the US market. And ultimately, we set this business up to tackle kind of the challenges created by sugary sweetened soft drinks, uh, things like obesity, diabetes, just general sluggishness, sluggishness and unhappiness that comes from drinking those products. Yep. And so the problem that's in the UK caused by those products is the same problem that's here. And so it felt like a a natural thing for us to move over and we'd always develop the brand and the proposition with this market in mind. Um, always wanted to come back this way and try and bring something from the UK back the other way, having worked at two American brands in the UK myself. That was just my <laughs> personal, personal ambition. So, so when you two guys started out, were you, um, I mean, it, in the US, we have a lot of cottage laws and stuff that allow you to kind of, you know, brew stuff up and sell it locally or whatever. But how did you handle that with, with ugly drinks? What was your, you know, what was your starting point with that? Yeah. So it's, I mean, as you say, it's, uh, it's challenging to get the very first CPG product off the ground. Um, whichever market you're in the UK or the U S um, you can't exactly make uh, canned seltzer around your kitchen table. So where are some, some brands maybe have that opportunity to test and learn in the kitchen we, we did our recipe development in bottles and kind of small batch stuff, but at a certain point you need to work with a co-packer in both markets and um, trust them with the recipe and the development you've done. Um, so we basically in both countries got the, got the product and the proposition and the brand and raised money um, very early on a small amount to get us to that very first production run. And then there's a day where you just submit everything, the artwork, the flavor development, the recipe, right. and you cross your fingers <laughs> and you hope that what comes out the other side is, uh, is a product that you can sell and, and, and you can kind of distribute. And um, we've gone through some ups and downs in that process along the way. 
but yeah, that's that's kind of how we got going. Uh, we made the first batch of drinks in the UK, sold it into our first retailer, which was Selfridges, which is a very famous American started uh, department store in London. Yep. Um, and then we got it into Whole Foods and yeah, sold through that first batch. And once you sold through the first batch, you, you learn so much about the packaging, the flavor development that you then move on to the second and and you hope at that point you're away. Um, if only it was as simple as that. <laughs> but um, that's the 22nd view of it. But distribution, you mentioned, is, of course, one of the things that's really critical. And o- over the last couple of podcasts I've recorded, uh, we, we've had some very interesting distributor stories, not not all of them pleasant, but to the point where I think I need to have a distributor on as a guest just as sort of a defense. But how did, <laughs> how, did you, how did you guys handle that when you were looking for a distributor? Did you start on a very local basis in New York, or what, what did you do? Yeah, so, so we launched the, the U.S. business um, a couple of years after we started in the U.K. So we already had um, – I'd imagine a, a brand that, at least if you search for Ugly online, you'd see that, I mean, we're, we are the number one flavored sparkling water in the UK. So you'd at least see that this was a business that was, uh, I guess, taking itself seriously. Um, so hopefully we look like that at least. Um, <laughs> and yeah, w- what we decided to do is very much as we did in the UK was work with small trusted partners because we know we had lessons to learn and we're like, we're, we're not... Um, overconfident in the sense that we just believe this is going to work. We knew that would be things we needed to adapt, things we needed to learn about the market. And so we started with a very small distributor in Brooklyn with a small kind of catchment area of stores. Um, and like when you're in the UK, obviously the idea of launching in America is so huge. Um, but what we decided to do is break it down into bite-sized chunks, start with New York, start with an area of New York, and then start with our first kind of 20, 40, 50 stores, got the product out there, did demos, point of sale, built displays, got some traction, and then very quickly we got noticed by a larger distributor in the in the city who now who now take, took our products and distributes it. So, um, yeah, I think I think there was a lot of lessons learned in that, those early days. And again, as you, as you alluded to, there are certainly contractual things, and definitely recommend getting somebody who knows what they're doing to take a look at the contracts before you do it because yeah. you can end up end up in some tricky situations, but. We knew that we had we we'd, we'd had the warning before of just to make sure we know what you're talking about and yeah so far we've got a great relationship with our distributor here and um, yeah continue to grow with them and learn learn by getting in stores and getting out there and selling stuff. Yeah, Hugh, how would you typify the difference between retailing in the UK and in the US, other than just size? I think yeah, no, it's a really interesting question and. Um, I think the major difference between the two markets is just is, is ultimately driven by scale. But in in the UK, it's a very consolidated retail market. So the UK's two largest retailers, Tesco's and Sainsbury's, have a huge number of different formats of stores. They have bodega-sized stores. They have large-format hypermarkets and everything in between. Uh, and they have them across the country in every town. So what you have is, I guess, a, cons- a consolidated number of really well-run uh, mainstream retailers and so if you want to get to significant scale in the UK you, you need to have a brand that resonates to lots of people at once and so you maybe have slightly more pressure to, to get something that's mainstream ready faster than in the US where I mean in the UK we, I think we have seven or eight Whole Foods now so if, if you yeah. have seven Whole Foods even if you're a really well performing brand it's hard to kind of grow a multi-million dollar business from that. Um, or, or and so whereas in the US there's 
plenty more, which means that in a certain channel or in a certain region, you can build a relatively big business. Um, so if you if you have a uh, a niche or a niche, which is the American translation, um, <laughs> then then you can kind of build a big business from that. Whereas in the UK, I think you need to be a lot more mainstream ready early, which is a challenge for entrepreneurial brands, which is why I think America is the best place in the world to, to launch a, an entrepreneurial CPG brand because um, there are opportunities, there are uh, niches, which are huge, which are, there's groups of consumers that are bigger than the UK alone, you know? Um, <laughs> and also I think the state-by-state -state distribution um, model here with uh, DFD distributors and kind of bev like certainly in beverage, um, that you can really get your hands on and get out there, whereas in the UK it's slightly more kind of consolidated. So they're the main differences. Both great places to start businesses, though, and great, and both have really interesting consumer bases who want to try new stuff and um, and, and grow. Yeah. Right, you can you can grow for sure. Exactly, you can grow in both markets. Both markets have great examples of entrepreneurs and challenger brands that have been there, and ultimately both sets of consumers are demanding healthier products. They're demanding interesting new flavors. Um, and so a lot of the kind of consumer trends that you see are similar between both markets. But yeah, I mean, the population size in the US and the consumption habits here mean as a food and beverage entrepreneur, the opportunity is absolutely massive. Yeah. So you guys have done a great job in terms of naming um, your your graphics stuff that you do and, and social media. Um, when, you, when you were launching, were you launching to basically folks like yourself and Joe, or did you, did you pick out another target market and say, okay, these, these folks are underserved? Yeah, I think we've all, we've always felt that there was a, a younger demographic emerger that wasn't going to drink soda in the same way that people 20, 30, 40 years ago drank soda. Right. Um, but we still knew that that, that ice cold can moment where you take a can out of the chiller uh, it doesn't cost you too much, and then you open it, and it has that noise and that feeling. Um, was still going to be something that was relevant, and as much as we love things like cold-pressed juice and kombuchas, they're relatively expensive, and we wanted to create a product that was accessible in price point, but still replace that kind of ice-cold soda moment just with something healthier. Um, so where, we, where we've seen the brand resonate in terms of the brand and what we stand for in this rebellious attitude is certainly with a younger demographic to, to soda. Um, we think that that consumer is craving kind of affordable options that they can kind of pick up and just enjoy at any time. Um, but we, we've also seen the brand kind of resonate in, in really interesting channels. I mean, so in the UK with offices where people have been drinking soda for years, it's a win-win for everyone involved where you can swap this product, swap soda out for your employees in an office and then swap ugly in and no one needs to feel as guilty about consuming it. Um, so we've seen a lot of success there where that younger demographic is working and discovering new products. So it's exciting. But again, like this, again, flavor sparkling waters for everyone. And, and we wanted to create something that was a, a price point and something that could resonate to consumers, whether you're, if you're not in London and not in New York or not in California, right. um, this is something you can afford and also speaks to you in a way that doesn't feel worthy or too try hard. So just something that's for everyone ultimately as well. You know, it's interesting that um, several people I've spoken to recently uh, really got a boost from food service sales in their initial, yes. uh, you know, initial launches. And 
there were some influencer or um, if you want to call them outlier kind of grocery that they were in, but they actually got somebody in a food service thing to go, oh yeah, we want to put that in offices or in cafeterias or whatever. And all of a sudden it was like, well, okay, yeah, I can do that. You know, it's a, it's a different route than you normally look at CPG wise. Yeah, there's so many interesting channels out there that challenger brands can explore building their brand with. I mean, for us in the US, direct to consumer was one where we spotted there was an opportunity in seltzer and sparkling water. Um, for other brands like you say, food service or uh, quick serve restaurants where consumers are discovering products as an opportunity. For us in the UK, we saw great success in the tech startup world offices um, right at the beginning um, to really get some great feedback, but also kind of meet a younger consumer who is also shopping outside of their office as well. So, yeah, for new entrepreneurs, there's always interesting channels that you can explore and play in. And the, I guess the real aim of the game is to focus and really where you are seeing traction, just double down almost and, and build, up a, build up a following in that that you can then scale out of there. So one thing in the US we're trying not to do is go too geographically wide too quickly and then focus where, right. where we're seeing uh, the product resonate, but also testing stuff at the same time as well. So testing some offices, testing some, some different types of store format and seeing what works. So if you, if you were, had the ability to be able to just do it, you know, with a, with a snap of the fingers, what would you <laughs> like to have as a, as a tool or a resource for uh, ugly drinks that you had when you were working on Heinz ketchup? Wow. There's so many, <laughs> certainly millions of dollars in the bank account is the help. But, um, <laughs> no, uh, realistically, I think, when, when I was, it's funny because when you're at Heinz, the, the number of processes, the amount of data you're analyzing um, is almost its weakness too, in the sense that they get bogged down by some of that stuff and they're not making, in my opinion, entrepreneurial decisions um, that entrepreneurs are making. But when you then go and start your own company, you're kind of craving the structures, the processes um, and the data that you used to have in your in your corporate job. But I think if there's one thing I would trade for right now, it would be the access to data we had um, at Heinz, um, both in terms of our own sales, which we do, Ugly does get some of in, in um, direct consumer and things like that, but certainly just the volume of in interesting information, number of people working on it, gives you so many interesting learnings as a marketeer, which is my background, that you can then adapt, tweak, learn from your consumers, learn, learn how their buying habits Whereas as an entrepreneur, very early on when you're cash-strapped, you're learning um, on the street, so to speak, person by person, listening to feedback. And yeah, it's a, lot, it's a great process and a learning process. But I mean, that would be nice at the stage of business right now to have access to that. <laughs> and it, were you working with Nielsen or IRI or both at that time? All of it. All of it. <laughs> I think they had everything. I can't yeah. remember all of it now, but yeah. They might, have bought, they, they might have bought both. There were companies who did. Yeah, I think they... They certainly bought both. There's, uh, in the UK, there's uh, Camtar, which is similar as well, and um, other behavioral data as well in terms of um, consumer buying behaviors and what was changing in, in the market at the time as well. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, when you start a business in your apartment in London, you don't have access to any of this. And, yeah. and equally, spending <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars on data isn't going to help your brand get off the ground. So, um that's what I'd do if I could pick my fingers right in a fictional world. <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny because there was um, a, a time when one of my one of my clients was uh, a, a Nielsen um, house, and they were being wooed by IRI in a big way. 
to the point where they actually were able to negotiate having, uh, if you will, duplicate data from both houses for a six-month period of time. And then they were going to make a decision, right. right? And so we gathered everything together, walked in, you know, sat down with the president of the company, looked at the numbers, and he said, are these even the same businesses? <laughs> you know, it's like, because they were well, t- is, two different pictures, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like, aren't you guys measuring the same stores and, you know, the same panels? And h- how can this be this far off? And it's like, well, you got to choose one or the other and use that as your measure and then go forward. That's it, and, and, and you've reflected there on, I guess, the dangers and the challenges of being a big business that gets bogged down in data as well. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't crave it all the time, and I love making entrepreneurial gut decisions based on chatting to consumers and listening. But, yeah, I mean, sometimes having just that extra level of information is so invaluable. Yes, yeah, and particularly with promotions and trade spending where um, exactly you yeah. can start throwing uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars away very quickly – without uh, getting anything anything back. Um, so one of the things, Hugh, we, tr- we try to do too is, um, especially because, again, your CPG background and then coming into this is, so not that you want any competitors out there, but if I'm in the, the drinks business or I'm in, you know, even food or whatever, um, what do you think is really necessary for success now that you've had some uh, to make that switch from larger company to entrepreneurial? I think um, one one of the things that I would say is I think there's a great quote which um, or a great line which is um, in life you should have strong opinions loosely held and I think <laughs> when you move from a big company to a small company it kind of applies in the same way that you need to get used to stuff changing quickly and adapting faster. Um, it's a cliche obviously to describe the the big businesses the oil tanker and the startup as the speedboat but driving a speedboat still requires a totally different set of skills um, and you need to be able to to react to what's coming your way um, and I think I was lucky enough to in some ways not spend too much time at a big company um, moving to a startup um, right. kind of very quickly on but I can imagine once you get used to the speed of decision making things kind of going your way that when you do start, start a business and um, what does, what's the Mike Tyson quote? Everyone gets everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> again, I'm just dropping loads of cliches here, but the principle is the same. Like that, that is the key kind of startup founder attribute that you need to have is what what happens when it goes wrong, or what happens when you need to change. And I think people in the big businesses that are able to adapt and think on their feet are the ones that will su- succeed at running a small company, and the ones that are expecting it to happen or react slowly will be the ones that don't. And it doesn't matter if you worked in a big company before or not. I mean, those principles are the same. Same. Um, besides building the business, uh, you've also been involved in, in some give back. It, is it Girl Up that you guys are funding? Yeah. So we, um, we always felt that as modern business, you need to be really conscious about your impact on the community and the, and what you do for the wider world. So not only do we think about sustainability every day internally and, our supply chain in the U.S. is very close to being plastic-free. Will be in the next month or so, um, which is pretty cool. Um, yes, we do. That. We're aiming for the same in the U.K. before before the start of 2020 to have all the plastic out of the supply chain. But we also decided as a as a team that we wanted to to tell the ugly truth about something outside of just flavored soda and sparkling water. And so internally, the, our business has been really pushed forward by having a diverse group of leaders. Certainly. 
the female leadership at Ugly has always been a driving force behind the brand. And we wanted to to kind of talk about that as something that's an ugly truth in the world in gender inequality, um, not only in not only in the Western working world, but also in the third world where people don't have access to education and, and other things that are essential in, in driving the, the world forward. And so we, we decided as a, as a company internally to partner with Girl Up, which is a United Nations Foundation charity. Um, and we give money back in both markets for every can sold. Um, that money goes towards supporting girls in the third world in places where it's hard to grow up as a, as a, as a, a young female. Uh, but we also um, support the the initiatives that happen in both the US and the UK with with the college students and uh, local activist groups. So yeah, something we're really proud of, and there's still lots more we can do. But we felt that that was something worth talking about with our consumers. And um, yeah, we we think there's other causes in future we'll add on to this one too. So continue working with Girl Up, but. As I'm sure you can imagine, there's other ugly truths in the world that our team internally and certainly our consumers are frustrated by that we think by picking up a can of ugly, you can do a little bit more to help with. So, yeah, excited by what we can do with that in the future. And interestingly, I think when it comes to business comparisons, the entrepreneurial, particularly food and beverage, I think we have a number of really dynamite female um, and minority entrepreneurs out there, certainly much better represented than in the uh, larger packaged goods world, let's say. Yeah, I mean, some of my best friends are minority um, or kind of uh, different background founders from all different parts of the world. And one of the reasons I'm personally so passionate about um, the industry and certainly the startup part of the industry is that ideas can come from anywhere. Um, the more we can democratize access to capital, access to, to talent um, and hiring people from different backgrounds, different genders, different religions, diversities, the more interesting ideas that will come out there and the more interesting our shelves will look, which ultimately gives consumers more choice. So, yeah, I think it's, it's as you said, the, the industry support, like definitely supports that. You have consumers who have different tastes, so it makes economic sense to everybody. But I think what's exciting is that as, as, it's democratized more, you'll have more and more interesting ideas coming from, from lots of different people. And certainly within Ugly, we obviously started with two, two white male founders. Uh, and I think we recognized early on that we needed not only gender diversity, but um, also <laughs> diff- diversity of different backgrounds too. And it's, it's added so much to our company that we wouldn't be where we are today if we hadn't done that early. Um, so yeah, our leadership team is, is a mix, uh, certainly a mixed diverse group of people who have different opinions, which is helpful. And then, Hugh, there's the Marketing Academy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was lucky enough to spend some time in the UK, on a, and it's a US uh, group as well, and uh, I spent a year on, on the Marketing Academy, uh, which is a, a group of, I think, a peer group of marketers, a lot of CPG marketers, right. who go on a year-long process of learning leadership and also spending time together. Um, I was yeah lucky enough to get selected to join that, and... I think I was one of two founders on my group of 30. So I was lucky enough to build a, a group of um, CPG entrepreneurs of a similar age to me with much more experience in large CPG, whether it's brands like Smirnoff or Heineken or Topshop or Snapchat. There were people from lots of different companies and we've all stayed in touch. We kind of still text on a regular basis and help each other out with different introductions. And it's just been invaluable for me to to kind of having taken the route I've taken in my career of going down small business, starting my own company, 
to spend time with people who who are pure marketers or pure kind of CPG marketers who I can text and get some feedback on packaging or marketing. It's just been great. And um, yeah, beyond that, we'll just be friends for a long time too. So I think you can apply in both markets. Um, So yeah, anybody out there should check it out. I I can't remember what the website is, but Marketing Academy will will get to take you there. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, pure... Peer education is always good and being able to reach out to people who have experience. And, you know, one of the fun things about being in the agency business is you work with six, seven or eight different businesses during the year. And then you can say, oh, yeah, Frozen. Wait, I know somebody in Frozen. I used to work with him at uh, Gorton's. So, you know, I can reach out and and make that make that happen. Um, Hugh, uh, because obviously not everybody necessarily is in a place where they can uh, walk into a store. But what's the distribution on? Uh, ugly drinks now and how can folks buy them if they don't happen to be in a place where they're in the store yeah so in the uk we're in we're we're in about seven thousand stores now uh tesco's and sainsbury's are the two largest retailers in the uk and we're in both those stores so if you're listening there you can do that um in the u.s we have selected distribution right now so mainly northeast focused in certainly in new york you can find us up and down the street in a lot of stores we're expanding our distribution this year but whether you're in the UK or the US, you can head to uglydrinks.com and we will deliver right, right to your door, no hassle. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best place and you can find us on social media too, Ugly Drinks. Um, and I'm Ugly Hugh if you want to follow what I'm up to. Um, <laughs> which may or may not be boring to people out there, but if you are interested and you can equally direct message me on there and I'll reply and I'm always willing to help people out because we've had a lot of help along the way as well. And you guys are still hiring, right? So... That's important. Yeah, always as always hiring. If, if you uh, want to send your resume or CV to us, jobs at uglydrinks.com. We review everything that comes in, different opportunities. Uh, there's always different uh, vacancies available. So somebody's looking to get into CPG, uh, we always look for people with different backgrounds, as I said, and different experiences. So uh, always looking to hear from people. And, and Hugh, I know you can't get into proprietary stuff, but what what's kind of next down the line? What are you guys looking at? more more flavors yeah, so, or? yeah more flavors certainly we launched our uh, range of energy drinks uh in the u.s last week which is a product called ugly energize uh it's 160 milligrams of caffeine uh, ginseng guarana and uh, b vitamin blend the product has no sugar no sweetener no artificial ingredients it's all organic um so we we really felt that there was an ugly truth around energy drinks too so ugly is not only a flavored sparkling water business but it's a flavored sparkling energy water business now um, we think we're a drinks company that can disrupt the status quo. And we felt that people pouring uh, lime green energy drinks into their mouths was something that felt like it was dated and we wanted to do something cleaner and better. So that's that's exciting. And then we're beginning to expand our business across the U.S. through different uh, retail channels now. I'm really excited by um, the potential growth ahead in that space um, and just the, the continued growth and availability of products that are healthier for consumers is what we're all working towards. So, yeah, over the next 12 months, hopefully you'll see us in a, in a store near where you're listening. There you go. And we'll be we'll be looking forward to that for sure. Um, well, Hugh, um, first of all, thanks a whole bunch for coming on and talking with us. Uh, we talked a little bit about entrepreneurial advice prior, but we usually we try to leave off uh, if we can, with sort of one one word or one topic that you know you'd like to pass on to to fellow entrepreneurs, uh, that sort of sums up your philosophy or approach. Um, anything that comes to mind, real quick. Yeah, I think this idea of joining the dots um, 
it's so important that we didn't know how to do any of what we've done at the beginning. Uh, we didn't know how to launch a business in the US. We didn't know how to make it, brand it, anything. Uh, and I think by talking to people like yourself, Steve, or other people who are well-connected, you can get introductions to very nice people, which the industry is full of, who will help you get along your way. And then as long as you pass it forward and pay it forward when you know what you're doing, um, the industry will keep being a great place to work. Um, but my point is you can figure out any problem um, that you see in front of you if you really put your mind to it and join the dots looking forwards. You know, and that's that's great because it, I think that is true of the industry. And and um, you know, if we keep going and keep building, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a, even a more fun place to work than it is now. And it's still a pretty fun business. If that's even possible, <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it's an amazing place to work. I'm very proud to work in food and beverage and uh, be part of a group of people creating stuff that people eat and drink every day to keep them going. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to be part of it for the future. And are, are you planning on making your way to Expo West this year? Yes, I should be there if anybody wants to find me. Um, you can reach out. I'll be walking around like everybody else. Or um, I think we'll have probably have an ugly stand there this year as well. So it'll be big, blue, and the word <laughs> ugly will be unmissable. Uh, yeah, it's it's that's a, a fun time of year, and it's a great place to get together. So hopefully we can do that. Well, Hugh, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank everybody's there. So look at them. Of course. Thank you so much. And uh, again, uh, folks, if you're in the New York City area or you know general Northeast area, you can uh, look to find uh, Ugly Drinks and the launch of the new uh, uh, Ugly Energized. And uh, you can also, of course, go to UglyDrinks.com and have it, as Hugh mentioned, delivered right to your door, which is which is just great. So thanks again, and thanks to all of you for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast. This podcast was brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands, and providers of courses, workshops, webinars, group, and one-on-one -on -one coaching for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you'd like to know more, check out the details at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. What you need to know to grow, kitchentoshelf.com. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.